Well, good morning again. Welcome. So glad you're here. For those of you in 101, 102, um, we hope this is a blessing to you and to those of you at home as well. Um, so glad you're with us today. Well, as we start today, you know, we've really been pushing towards our 2030 vision and looking for opportunities to really engage and love our neighbors well. And I want to share with you one of those opportunities real quickly. So watch this. And tell you about a really exciting ministry opportunity that we have through a ministry here in Tyler, Texas, as a part of the Mentoring Alliance, and it's called Mentor Connect. Yes. This is my friend Kilton, and he's going to tell you a little bit more about their ministry. Yes, so Gary, first of all, thank you for allowing us to come and, and have this time. Um, our program is called Mentor Connect, uh, formerly known as Gospel Village, and many people know it through the Mentoring Alliance. And we have the after-school program, we have the summer camp, but today we want to talk about our mentor program. Uh, we exist to mobilize godly people like yourselves into the lives of kids and families to provide tangible help and eternal hope. Our goal is to come alongside uh, Pastor Gary uh, and you guys, and whatever he's teaching you on Sunday, we want that to be able to be lived out in the community. And so we are not a church, but we come alongside churches and we give people like yourself an opportunity to live out the gospel and live out what you're being taught on Sundays. So it gives us an opportunity to engage our community like we've talked about for the last several years. So if I want to be a mentor and I say, hey, I'm, gonna, I'm in, I go through the process, yeah. I get partnered with a kid, what do I do? Yeah, so um, you do what you're already doing, and that's living life. Um, we ask that you set aside two days every month to visit with this mentee face-to-face. Bring your kid to church. Uh, go eat lunch with them at school post-COVID. Um, take them to the baseball game. Whatever you're currently doing, we don't, add, we don't ask that mentors create a whole new life. Sometimes people are scared to mentor because they're like, oh, what do I have to do? Um, you do what you're already doing. Uh, for younger kids, you can just bring them along with you if you have your own kids. If you're an empty nester, um, then you can do the same thing you did with your kids. Just uh, begin to be creative. Take them to Andy's. Um, there, there's a lot of things that can be done out in the community, um, and we look forward to seeing those lives being transformed as you are sharing your life with your mentee. Hey, Kilton, thanks so much for the yep. time, and appreciate the, the, the message this yep. morning, and uh, man, looking forward to this. Yep, thank you. Awesome. So, so Kilton is a good friend of mine. Um, we coach baseball together. Our kids are kind of in the same stage, and so um, I love what they're doing and really helping churches to connect with people in our community. This last week, I got to spend a day with my kids at their school, um, at Andy Woods Elementary. And one of the things that, that you do in those days when you're with your kids is you get to do what they call a walk and talk. And so you go take other kids who might be struggling and going through difficult times, um, just walk through the school and, and sit and talk and have conversation with them. And two of the, the three kids that I got to, to talk with had lost dads through deaths and just reminded me that there are so many um, kids in our community who are hurting, um, who maybe don't come from great homes, and what Mentoring Alliance is really seeking to do is empower our churches to get in there and help where we can to bring the gospel into our schools. You know, we complain a lot that, that people have taken prayer out of schools. Well, here is an opportunity in some small way to put it back in. And so if you want to help and be a part of what they're doing, or just simply want information, there's a table 
the, right outside the auditorium here, the window right in front of the playground, and they're going to be there after church. Just stop by. Um, they will get you some information. They'll allow you to go to, I think, what they call a spark that gives you more information about it before you ever commit to, to jumping into this. And so they are looking for godly men and women to partner with um, in helping to bring the gospel into our schools. So um, Mentor, Connect, or Mentor Alliance table is right out there when we get done this morning. So um, as we get into the message, um, I'm going to go through a really big section this morning, um, bigger than I like to do, but if we don't kind of pick some bigger sections to kind of make it through, we're going to spend like two years in the book of Mark, and I really wanted to kind of make it into half a year, um, because it's already, you know, takes a while to go through. And so um, I want to kind of move through the first two sections really quick. And then I want to get to, I think, where Mark is really trying to lead us. But if you're new to this series, this series is Messiah. This is part two of a sermon trilogy, three series that we're walking through the, the gospel of Mark. And, and this series is all based on this statement by Peter in Mark chapter 8. But who do you say that I am? Jesus asked Peter. Um, Peter answers, you are the Messiah. And the question that we're wrestling with during this, this series is what are the implications of your confession or our confession that Jesus is Messiah? What does it actually mean for us to confess Jesus is our Messiah? And so we're going to start in verse 30 of chapter 9. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples and he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Calpurnium, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet, because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Teacher, said John. We saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he was not one of us. Don't stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of cold water in my name because you belong to the Messiah, will certainly not lose their reward. So, so Jesus begins, and I want to kind of just throw out three real brief ideas in this kind of section. The first is this reminder that Jesus is on a journey. Jesus is going somewhere, and it's very intentional. One of the things I asked you to do a few weeks ago is anytime we see this, these phrases that we're, we're moving, right? He begins this section with, um, they left that place and they passed through Galilee. And then, then a little bit later in verse 33, 
Um, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way. And so I want you to circle those places that are really kind of journey ideas. Because Mark is leading us somewhere. He's being very intentional about how he uses these words to remind us that this is a movement. Jesus is not stagnant. Jesus is not telling people, hey, it's just going to be this way. Just go ahead and figure it out. But Jesus is actually walking with and leading his disciples on the way, on the road. He's walking with them. He's teaching them. He's helping them to grasp this idea of the kingdom of God because it is so much bigger than what they could comprehend and what they could grasp. Second thing is right now the disciples, and I kind of feel sorry for them. Because they're, I think, trying to figure out Jesus. They're trying to figure this whole thing out. And I think it's pretty confusing. Because Jesus begins um, early on in the Gospels talking through parables. And explaining things and using metaphors and illustration. And he starts talking a little bit later through paradox. These kind of truths that seem really out of place and don't seem to make sense. But in the end, they start to make sense. He starts referencing Old Testament prophets and trying to compare himself to them. And and then there are also times where he speaks really, really literally. And here in this passage, there, there is kind of a paradox that he's talking about. The first is going to be last. And he's referencing the Old Testament with the Son of Man, and in three days he's going to rise again. And then at the same time, he's also talking really, really literally. And I kind of feel for the disciples as they're trying to, wait, wait, what's going on? Like, are, is this a parable? Is this one of those things that you're telling us that no one else would understand so that we'll, we'll see it and we'll hear it but we won't grasp it? Or are you being literal? And I think they're trying to fill their way through what Jesus is saying. And, and we kind of laugh, I do, at the disciples when Jesus says, I'm going to die, and he's telling them this for the second time, we kind of laugh when they're like, not getting it. And I wonder, can we blame them? I mean, think about your life and how difficult at times it is to hear and understand the voice of God. That, that everyone ever confuse anyone? When you're trying to, to listen to God speak to you, like we believe that Jesus is alive, his spirit lives in us, is leading us, is going to, to guide us, and we're trying to watch where we take our next step and listen to the voice of God. And at times it's very difficult. And I think for these disciples, it's every bit as difficult and confusing at times as it is for us. Trying to make sense of this whole thing. I I remember different times in our life when I I believe God was asking me and calling me to take a step of faith. For for our family, taking a step of faith and leaving Cleveland, a home we had had for 10 years, and, and coming to Tyler, Texas, where we had never really been before, was one of those times where we're listening to the voice of God, trying to pursue Him and trying to follow Him, and the whole time wondering, God, is this really what you're 
saying? Is this really what you're doing, calling us to an asking? And the disciples are in this place trying to figure it all out. And then the third thing is simply that we are at war. And I I say this because I think we forget this so often. We, We forget that we are in a war. And Jesus reminds these disciples, listen, it's okay that other people are doing good things in the name of Jesus. Don't stop them. Because this is really serious what's going on right now. And we need all the allies that we can get who are moving in the same direction. And if they aren't for you, or if they aren't against you, if they aren't trying to kill you, if they aren't trying to put you on a cross, then consider them for you. And I don't think he would step back and say, well, it's, theology doesn't matter. But he has this bigger picture in mind. And one of the primary concerns, I think, for these disciples is what were they just arguing about on the road? Who is the greatest? And now there's someone else that they hear about is doing what they are doing. And I think it brings this threat of, wait, could they take my place? And so Jesus' reminder, if you want to be great, then you must be a servant. You must take the lowest place and be willing to serve. And it's not about power and position, right? They're struggling, trying to reach the place of, of the greatest in the kingdom. They're arguing about it. And when Jesus calls them on it, it's almost like you see this embarrassed look, like, I can't believe we were so petty and so childish. See, the kingdom, he'll go on to say, comes through really small and unexpected ways. You welcome a child in my name, and it's as if you're welcoming me. Not not just welcoming me, but welcoming my Father's world into this world. And, And I think another place where Jesus is using maybe an illustration or a metaphor or an example Because as he says child, there's the literal child who's there with him that he's holding in his arms. But I also think he has in mind those people who are just beginning this journey. Who are just starting to follow him. See, in these three sections that that come back to back to back, for me, give me the most um, problems in Mark's gospel. Because there's this flow to the gospel, and then it comes to chapter 9, and it Almost to me, just at first glance, seems like Mark's just like, oh, yeah, I need some more material. Let's put this in here and this and this. And I struggled to fit it all together. I I, I struggle with how this works. But he goes on. If anyone, verse 42, causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble... It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into a sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better to enter life maimed than to have two hands and to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell. Where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. So the question then, is Jesus being literal? Cut off your hand, cut off your foot, pluck out your eye. And maybe a better question, is the foot or the hand or the eye the cause? Is it the cause or is there something below the surface that we do not see. So confession time. How many people have ever tried a diet? Okay, raise your hand. I'd like, I'd like, I just confession. How many people have ever tried a diet? Okay, some of y'all are lying. (laughs) How many people have ever failed as you try to diet? Yeah, (laughs) there's your amens, right? Yeah, we've tried that. What is it that gets in the way of being successful in your diet? Food? Yes. Yes. Wendy's. What what a burger. We're in Texas, right? The the what a burger, right? With cheese, double, large fries, large sweet tea. Chris, they're not open yet. Sorry. Sorry. I wonder what my neighbor's going to do to me now. Our house is going to get toilet papered tonight, I think. No, what what is the cause of it? Is it your stomach? Or is it your eyes? Is it your mind? Maybe you're an emotional eater. Maybe you're a celebratory, celebratory eater, right? There, there's, there's all these things that we can blame it on, but below that is an appetite, right? We, we have this appetite, and we want it to be filled, right? That, that's what leads us down those paths, is those appetites, Here's a a, a few things, because we have appetites for everything. There for the disciples is an appetite for greatness. They're arguing on the road. Who's the greatest? We have an appetite for safety and security. Like We want to know that everything is okay. We, We have an appetite for wealth, for notoriety. We have an appetite for control. Anyone like to control things? We have an appetite for that. We have an appetite for love. And and really, maybe we could say for lust. An appetite for growth. See, here's some things you need to know about appetites. One is God created them. Sin distorted them. We, We all have these appetites within us. There's an appetite to be loved. 
but sin has distorted that appetite. Where we have this appetite to have this relationship with another person. But sin distorts it. And it makes it difficult. That's why we have problems with pornography. That's why we have people who, who struggle so badly with that addiction. It's that appetite. And if you get to the root of it, it's really probably about love. It's about feeling needed. We have these appetites for alcohol. To, to be filled and to not have to think and not have to worry because it kind of dulls the pain. We have these appetites. God created them, sin distorted them. Secondly, appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. All of us who've tried the diet and, and failed, right? Like, hey, I'm going to eat good today, and like you have a great breakfast, and then you're driving by Whataburger at lunch, and like, oh, that's not good. And, and it's, it's over. How many people are eating Whataburger for lunch today now? No. <laughs> but, but when you do have that meal, and it's like, oh, man, that was so good. Like, there was not this moment following that where you're like, you know what? I don't really need to eat again now. Everything's okay. If anyone likes getting new toys, new gadgets, like, right, you, you get the iPhone, what, what are we on, 11 now? I don't know. iPhone 12 now? Yeah. Um, I have the 11. I probably need to go get the 12 now. Um, you have the iPhone 12. Guess what happens next year? Yeah. There's going to be a new one. And it's going to have some amazing new feature that will change your life and your world forever that you must have and pay astronomical prices for. Right? That, that appetite for wealth. You, you never look at your bank statement and say, I think I'm good. I don't think I'm ever going to have to worry about this again. If you do, um, I like to eat at Outback. Um, Texas Day Brazil, I love gift cards. Um, no, no, but those appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. There, there's always that hunger for more. And then third is this, appetites always scream now and never later. We, we have these appetites and they continually come up and they never say, you know what, I know you want that, that food right now, I know you want that new device now, but... But I know logically I'm just, I'm, I'm going to wait. Our, our appetites never tell us to wait. They always say we need it and we need it now. And so Jesus comes to these disciples and he says, if you have this problem with lust, take your eye and pluck it out and throw it away. Because it's better to have one eye and live life as a part of the kingdom of God than to have both eyes and find yourself on the outside looking in. Question. If lust is a problem, if lust is a temptation, and you pluck out one eye, is it possible to lust with only one eye? If greed is an issue and an appetite and you cut off a hand, 
Is it possible to still be greedy with just one hand? So we go back to the question. Are the foot and the hand and the eye the cause of the problem? Or is it an appetite that's connected to something besides our stomach? Is it an appetite of the heart? Is it an appetite that ultimately God intended to fill himself in our life? That we search everywhere else to fill. The need to be loved. The need to be wanted to to have more. The the need for safety and security. The need for growth. the, The need to see transformation. The need for love. The need for greatness. Is it possible that it comes from a different source than what Jesus suggests we cut off? See, here's the thing. Deep within all of us, there are these desires. There are these appetites. And left unchecked, they will wreak havoc on your heart and soul. Um, We have several flower beds around our house. And my favorite thing to do in the world is to get down on my hands and knees and pull the weeds out. So much so that last year we had a weed that was actually taller than one of our rose bushes on the side. And just so you know, the rose bushes right now are pretty mature and they come up to about my shoulder. And we had this weed that was growing up above. And and my typical inclination is to get my weed eater, crank it up, and zap them all. And it fixes the problem immediately. And if you throw mulch on top, it'll even give you another couple of weeks where no one will see the problem. But, but all of us know how we fix that, right? We know. And, and the reason we don't mess with it, the reason we don't do it, is because it takes time and it's hard, hard work. And what Jesus here is suggesting If you want to be a part of the kingdom, it's going to take hard work. And to be quite honest, there are times it will be painful. And it will be difficult because we've got to get to the root of the problem. We've got to get down with our hands and get our knees into the the muck and the mire. And we've got to start rooting stuff out that doesn't belong Do you remember a little earlier in this gospel of Mark, in chapter 3, when Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, there is a sin that is unforgivable. He says it's speaking evil of the Holy Spirit, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. And what we said was, it's not necessarily the sin where he cannot forgive, but it's more about you and your heart and where you are. It's when we call the work 
of the Spirit in this world evil. And he says, when you begin down that road, when you start walking this path, it's almost impossible to come back from. And I think the same sentiments are true here. If these appetites get out of control, then it's really possible to find yourself on the outside of the kingdom of God looking in. Because these roots go deep and they grab hold of your heart and they will suffocate your spirit. My guess is every single one of us have been in that place where one of those appetites started to take root Maybe multiple appetites started to take root in your heart and your soul. And one day you look up and you feel so distant from Christ. And you wonder, how in the world did this ever happen? I've been to church. I've been studying or I've been reading. I've been praying. I've been... But those appetites wedge themselves in there ever so subtly that we don't notice it until it's too late. And when we finally realize that the weeds are there, the only way to fix it is to do the hard work that's required. See, Jesus has, has warned his disciples, this is not going to be easy. He predicts his death, and Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. And then he goes and he tells them to take up their cross and follow him. And now he predicts his death again. He, he's told them, I'm going to, to suffer and die. And then he tells them, listen, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to be part of the kingdom of God, it's going to take some really hard work. This is not just something that you sit idly by and are a part of. As a spectator. As someone just watching from the crowd. This is something where you've got to do the hard work because we are at war and the kingdom of God is breaking in, and it's going to require sacrifice. And if you think otherwise, your soul is in danger. Have you ever woke up one day and just felt consumed by greed, or anger, or lust, consumed by it and wondering how you got there? Consumed by it and wondering how do you get out of that place. And I would just say it's going to take some hard work. It's going to take some work beneath the surface that no one else really is going to be able to see. But if you're willing to do the hard work, 
God is going to do things to transform your life. See, here's the beauty. As we celebrated Easter several weeks ago, is the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. I don't know who was clapping, but um, Tennyson, everyone should be clapping when we say that, just so you know, right? The tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. And more so, he has sent his spirit into your life to empower you and to convict you and to challenge you. Not that you would just stay the same. Not that you wake up one morning with this hopeless feeling of, I don't know how I've gotten here, but rather this feeling of hope saying, there is a way out. Come, follow me. So this morning, I want to just ask you, what is the appetite or the appetites that are suffocating your soul right now? Is it the safety and security? Is it greed? Is it lust? Is it, is it wealth? Is it greatness and, and fame? Is it being known? My, my guess is somewhere within you there are these tensions that we battle. These appetites. And this morning, I just want to simply ask God, one, that he would convict us of those appetites that are suffocating us. And secondly, that he would light our path away from it as we do the hard work to deal with what doesn't belong. So that we don't find ourselves on the outside of the kingdom looking in. Because God is at work in this world in amazing and beautiful ways. And you and I, by His grace, get to be a part of it. Father, for all that is in our life that does not belong. We ask for your forgiveness. For all that is there that pulls us away from you, we plead for your mercy and grace. And Father, we ask that your Spirit, living within us, would convict us of what does not belong what is just a substitution for what we're really searching for in you. And Father, more than that, leave us not with just this spirit of hopelessness that we are where we are, but rather a sense of hope that today is a new day, a day you have called us out of the darkness into your marvelous light. We thank you, we praise you, we love you, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. If we could help you this morning, we're going to have step shepherds um, around the back of the auditorium. If we could pray over you, help you in your journey, 
If you've never given your life to Christ and been baptized into him and found newness of life, we offer you that as well. So our shepherds will be around the back of the room as we stand to sing. Whatever we can do to help you, let's sing.